And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the really great pleasures of my life was to go through uh, a series of really momentous campaigns and experiences uh, with David Pluff, who was uh, a guy I worked for when he was a young campaign manager and I was a media consultant. Ultimately, we became business partners, and then we became partners in one of the great campaigns of all time, the Barack Obama campaign in 2008. I've said it uh, many, many times. There's never been a better campaign manager in my lifetime than David, and he was. Uh, we were um, partnered up in that and in many things after, including 2012. We worked closely together, and uh, I sat down with him the other day to reflect on those experiences, his life in politics, uh, and uh, the current campaign. My old buddy David Pluff, good, good to see you. Good to see you, X. You know, I knew you before you were a legend. I knew you before you were the guru that you're recognized to be today. But I didn't know you when you started in politics, so... Tell me a little bit about that, because I know that you, um, that that you sort of came out to the Midwest and had an epiphany working in Iowa. Yeah. Well, I knew you before uh, before the legend as well. Yeah, I so know. We uh, we both know the truth, don't we? That's right. It's a <laughs> pact, a non-aggression pact. If they only knew. Yeah, I know. Well, we'll how lucky from, we were. We'll stay away yeah. from that. No, I I got involved in politics actually when I was in college. This is dating me. We used to have these things called student newspapers that were physical yes, and you'd yeah, open them up and papers, yeah, printed and everything. Printed, and I had done in college. That's when uh, students read newspapers. Students read newspapers, front to back. I uh, you know had uh, sold knives door to door, cleaned chimneys, did some uh, tennis teaching, and there was an ad. I was a political science major. Uh, to work on a U.S. Senate campaign as a paid canvasser going door-to-door. And so I did that in Delaware. We uh, actually won an election night, and they discovered a vote count error, and we lost in a recount. And it made a big impact on me because I realized if any of us had worked harder, we lost by 71 votes. We could have scrounged up 72 votes, even in a small state like Delaware. So, yeah, I worked, went to Iowa to work for Tom Harkin. This was in 89, right after the 88 caucuses. Um, and which you were involved in. And it was a magical place because organizing mattered and people took politics seriously. And it was a great proving ground. And, uh, and he was running for re-election at the running time? Running for re-election, his first re-election against Tom Talkey. Oh, yeah, Tom It was a Talkie. tough race. Yeah. And he was a great mentor because, uh, you know, he passionately believed in issues, but he also passionately believed in winning campaigns. Right. And so uh, I got to see both sides of the coin. When I was working for uh, Tom Vilsack in 98... In Iowa, uh, Harkin took a deep interest in that campaign and was very generous with his advice throughout. And it generally was very aggressive. Uh, yes. he, he was, uh, he, he's a guy, you're right, who combines uh, idealism with a real sharp-edged feel for politics. Well, it's interesting. So I may get him in trouble, but he's retired. He doesn't care. I remember back in 07 and 08, he was neutral during the primary, Obama-Clinton. But he'd often call on debate nights, I think after a whiskey or two, uh, <laughs> with advice for how we should handle it. And it generally was not a, a velvet hammer. It was always a suggestion that would be tougher. Yes. Yeah. But uh, so you, uh, you – now your folks weren't involved in, in politics at all. They weren't. Not at all. They voted. 
and went through their Reagan era, but uh, not involved in politics. At what all. did they do? So my father worked at DuPont after he came out of the Army. Uh, kind of started There's a lot of folks in Delaware. Right. It was the company. Yeah, basically at some at one point, I think it was one out of every 10 people worked directly. Indirectly, it was more like one out of four. So it was a company town. So he started kind of on the floor and worked his way up and, and ended up uh, working in marketing at the end of his career. And my mother was an artist. She uh, uh, authored some crafts books and sold sculpture to the most talented person I ever I ever met. And uh, what happened when you told them that you, you left school to go out and work for Harkin, right? I did. How did they feel about that? You know, they weren't thrilled about it. <laughs> um, but it was interesting, I think because it was Iowa, and they knew that I had an interest in politics at that point, that it was worth trying. So they were really good about it. It was harder then than it is now. So if like, you'd said Chicago, they would have had misgivings. Huh? Uh, they would have locked the door, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, it's funny, a few years later, so as I got deeper into politics, my younger brother became uh, the manager of a used car lot. So you have one son in politics and the other selling used cars. <laughs> so fortunately, my sister did uh, a little bit more of the straight and narrow. And, uh, and, and when you came out of the Harkin experience, what happened? So we won, which was a, a great experience, and I decided to stay in Iowa, and I, and I ran the legislative program for the Iowa Democrats, which was recruiting people to run for the state house. Great experience, by the way, because you're just out there. I was a young kid trying to convince people to come off their farms. And Something, by the way, Democrats should do more of. I, I, you and I have talked about right. this, but one of the great, uh, I think, demerits, and, and we bear some responsibility for it. I think there were intervening events that got our attention, but... Um, you know, I think that the Republican Party has done a much better job than Democrats at recruiting and supporting candidates for legislature, school board, city council, building that bench, taking over legislatures, both the party and the Koch brothers and some of these uh, oligarchical organizations have been really good at it. We're not terribly as, it, uh, Democrats are not terribly good at that. No, and I don't know where it's going to come from because, you know, there, there is no party anymore, really. So the Republican effort has mainly been done by super PACs. Yeah. They've decided to buy attorneys general and secretaries of state and even judges. And so uh, on our side, we're going to have to be a lot more ruthless about that, I think, and focused on it. I agree. But that was a great experience for me because, you know, you're out there in, in Monticello, Iowa, and um, Keokuk, and you know, out in the western part, Atlantic, and you're just trying to recruit people to run for office. So I was doing that, and I was going to do that through the 92 election, and then Tom Harkin decided to run for president against, uh, you know, a bunch of people, including Bill Clinton. Right. And uh, we who got mowed over by the Clinton did, phenomenon. Who didn't seem as awesome at the beginning as he did at the end. No, right. So when he got in, I remember us not being very concerned about it. And so our, our focus was on Bob Kerry, who was competing for a lot of the same votes and edged us out in, in New Hampshire um, and ultimately went and, and beat us in South Dakota. But uh, that was a great experience. You know, I remember in 92, our headquarters... Uh, you probably were up there. It was in Manchester, and we are um, right next to the Nader headquarters. So all these people driving around their beat-up cars with these big six- or eight-foot-long pencils on it, the right in Nader. It was, <laughs> it was a crazy experience. There's nothing like the New Hampshire primary because, I mean, I'm, I love the caucuses in Iowa, but the primary, you know, you've got small communities, and you've got all these candidates. You know, at any given time on Elm Street in Manchester, you can have three or four different candidates, and it's just a great circus. What do you— uh what about Harkin's politics? Other than that, he was a that he was a competitor. But but what about his politics appeal to you? 
Well, first of all, you know, the work he did for the disability community uh, was such a um, remarkable thing up close. He just was so passionate about it, uh, largely because of his Wrote brother, the Americans for Disabilities wrote Act. Wrote the Americans for Disabilities Act, and I worked for him when he pushed it through. So to watch the outpouring in terms of what that meant to people, people who really felt like they had been forgotten and left behind, was so powerful. And then he was always— I feel, you know, I have a, as you know very well, as a good friend of mine, I have a— an adult child with disabilities, I, I feel a great debt of ga- gratitude to him uh, for that. Well, it's interesting. You know, you think it wouldn't be controversial, but it was a really hard thing to get through. You know, businesses complaining about the burdens it would place on them. So that was a, just a, a real um, privilege to watch that up close and the passion he brought. And then he always was a fighter for the underdog, but he also took controversial stands. I mean, uh, I think if I recall in our, that 90 election, our tagline, you're one of the greatest political spot writers of all time. Um, so this wouldn't be the natural tagline was the courage of his convictions. Um, but it spoke to more, you know, about his character. And he was willing to kind of tilt against the wind. Yeah. There were some people in uh, Chicago who ran on a variation of that saying, ignore his convictions. <laughs> so, uh, so, and then uh, when did you, uh, so... When you and I met was 1996. You were working for a guy named Charlie Oberly. 94. Oh, was that 94? Oh, yes. The dreadful 94. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 94. And you were the wizard. Yes. But no. no you know, even the, a wizard could do it in 94. No, that's right. Sometimes the timing is more important right. than the candidate of the campaign. But yeah, so you were the media consultant and strategist on that race. I had managed a congressional race in 92 in Massachusetts successfully for John Over and then came to Delaware. And that's when I first met. How you. old were you then? Twenty-seven, twenty-six yeah. when I was hired. And what did you like? I about- look back on it with terror, by the way, as, because as I didn't know what Oberly, I was doing. Probably. <laughs> so, do you? Uh, do, do you? Uh, what did you? Uh, uh, you you managed a house race, a uh, pretty competitive house race in Western Massachusetts when you you were twenty-five. This Oberly race was was not an insignificant race going after a, a fairly um, significant Republican target, Bill Roth. Uh, what did you like about managing? Um, I mean, you were a field guy. Now you moved into the management role. I ask you this because, and you know I've said this behind your back, uh, you, hmm. you, you are the, the best manager of my lifetime. I mean, I know we sound like we're just kissing each other's asses here, but, you know, I think that's demonstrable. Um, but you, obviously, you took to it at an early age. You you liked sort of running the show. Uh, what What is it about that? How'd you make that transition? Well, it's an interesting question, because um, when I managed my first race in 90, right, I got hired when I was 24. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and it probably showed. But as I got into it more, I, first of all, I love the strategy part of it. Like, how are we allocating our time? How are we allocating our resources? Um, what's our theory of the election, from, both from a message standpoint and from a, a vote standpoint? And I love just being faithful to that um, and being disciplined. And then, um, you know, as you know, I'm not a really warm and fuzzy person. Uh, <laughs> but I love, you know, kind of leading people and, and helping people thrive and succeed. And that's one of the joys of this. I think as we get deeper in the Obama experience, it's the people you did it with as much as what we did that yeah. matters the most. And so I just love that part of it. And I love the candidate management part of it. I mean, that can be a royal pain in the ass at times. Um, but I've learned a lot, you know, the way they view the race. 
Uh, everything on their schedule is important to them, even if it's not important to us. And, you know, how much rest are they getting and what information are they getting? So I, I find it to be a very complex series of things. How did you, when you were a young kid, I managed a race when I was 29 here in Illinois, Paul Simon. How did you uh, impart that message to your candidates that, you know what, we're not going to do it actually that way because it doesn't make sense. We're going to do it this way. I mean, did you have the confidence to do that then? I did, although I'm sure I didn't do it terribly effectively compared to what I was able to do later. You learn tricks, right, as you get on. Um, I work with a lot of young people now, so I, I value experience more than I used to. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I tried to, to do it rooted in data, uh, rooted in experience, rooted in history. Um, that, you know, if, if they wanted to go to an event that didn't make a lot of sense, try and explain why that was, not just say no. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is to communicate as much as possible up front so everybody in the organization understands what the strategy is. So that when you're making decisions, there's less... Um, excitability around it because people have a sense of it either fits our strategy. So, you know, back in the Obama years, we knew we had to win Iowa. So every decision kind of flowed from that and it made decision making a little bit easier. Um, what, but, you know, every candidate's different. I've worked for some that were very even keeled, some that are not. So that's the other thing that I find interesting about it just from a sort of uh, human standpoint is how people withstand pressure, how they respond to it. Some people respond to it well. Some candidates you work with only sweat the big things. Some people sweat everything. Some people lose their temper over small things. Um, don't treat people well. You know, some people, um, you know, really motivate people. So that's the thing people forget is even with all the data and the polling and the expertise, it's still human beings engaged in the political combat. And so I find that really interesting how these different candidates react to different pressure moments. Now, you're not a really big dude. They can't see that on a podcast. But you're you you you're you're a fine athlete. I mean, you played a lot of different sports. Uh, you mentioned that you taught tennis for a while. Uh, you played baseball into your, I want to I say your, your advanced years. You haven't reached your advanced well, years. Well, I did do some adult baseball, which was fun, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, how much did, did that, how much did the sports thing help in terms of your... Right. Uh, you know, learning how to forge a team. and Well, I don't think you're, you're overly kind. I don't know if I was a fine athlete, but I've always been competitive. Yes, that's right? true. So, yes, I remember an evening, <laughs> in fact, when we were on a off, when we were partners uh, in a, uh, in, in the media firm, when we had a, I don't know if you remember this, a night out and we had a bowling out, outing and you wouldn't let us leave until you won a line there. I don't know what hour we 3 left, yeah. whatever it took. <laughs> Whatever it took, but there is a competitiveness to you uh, that uh, that that's pretty palpable. Yeah, I mean, I I think that sometimes I think I've been accused a little bit of being a mercenary. Like I don't care about the issues; I just want to win. That's not true. Like you, I'm motivated deeply by passion and beliefs about uh, where our country and world ought to go. But I do enjoy the clarity of campaigns. You win or you lose. Yeah. And so in 94, when we worked together in that center race in Delaware, I actually thought we did a great job. Um, and, you know, no one could have withstood the tides of that year, but we still lost. Yeah. So I love the sort of clarity of that. Uh, and and so the competitive instant, and, you know, what, mo what matters most is are you winning on election day? And I'm not one that thinks you should focus on, like, did you win the day-to-day -day press war? But every day you're trying to make tangible progress toward a goal. How much money do you need? How many volunteers? 
Are you making the progress you need with the electorate? And so that really does kick in the competitive juices because um, you are really um, going to be judged ultimately on election day. And also, you know, I think there's too much hatred between the parties. But when you're in a campaign, there is this sort of tribal sense of good and evil. And I enjoy that part of it. You're all rallying behind a cause, a person. You've got an opponent, uh, and you want to defeat them. In some cases, you want to destroy them. I don't defend that, but that's basically how— But you don't deny it either. I don't deny it, right. Yeah. I mean, you just—you you want to win. And, and listen, Bobby Kennedy, who I think was the greatest campaign manager of all time, right. uh, was as inspirational as you could get, right? Something, yeah. You know, some people see things and as they, they are. And the same— the So same, ruthless. Same exact instincts. Yeah. You have to win yeah. to have any chance to enact your agenda. And and he's and I've I've really was was followed him closely for that reason because um, I think that he was as ruthless as as could be at the same time trying to inspire people in a common cause. You went to work for Dick Gephardt. Uh, tell me about that and how you came to work for him, and um, and uh, what that experience was like working on the Hill uh, for him. So, yeah, so in 96, two years after we worked together, I managed Bob Torcelli's race yes. in New Jersey, The Torch. The Torch, yeah. Which um, every day I felt like I was torched, but we won. Uh, there was a guy who wanted to, who wanted to win at all times. Uh, too much at all times. Yeah. Yes, wanted to wear too nice a suits while I Yes, did. we all remember that. We all remember that. Anyway, so I came out of that, and I, again, I was young, 29 at the time, and uh I had offers actually to go work for Tom Daschle, who was a Senate leader, and Dick Gephardt. So I was really pinching myself and really thinking I was way over my head because it was one thing to run a Senate race, another to go work on the Hill. But I chose Gephardt primarily because he was likely to run for president. Uh, and having spent time in Iowa, I, I really wanted to, uh, to get involved in that again. So I went to work for Gephardt and served as deputy chief of staff with a great team there and, and lifelong friends. And um, you know, the presidential campaign was always kind of in the wings, so we did a lot of planning in 97 and 98, but most of my job was just day-to-day dealing with Congress, and those were busy times. It was right after Clinton uh, won his re-election, so, uh, you know, we had to deal with impeachment. And uh, Gephardt was a Democratic leader. He was a time. Democratic leader. Uh, Tom Foley had been Speaker and lost in 94 in a bloodbath, and Gephardt took over. And just a great guy, just a good human being, very even-keeled a great sort of gallow sense of humor, something you and I share, which is so important when you're going through tough times. And uh, it was a great experience. And, you know, to work in the Capitol, uh, you know, it's not like the White House. You and I both had the privilege of working there. Every day you pinch yourself, and if you don't, you should leave. But still, to work in the Capitol building for a kid from Wilmington, Delaware, was an awe-inspiring experience. Um, And then in 99, Gephardt decided not to run for president. So I went and uh, ran the DCCC, to use a Washington acronym, the campaign arm for House Democrats. And we came very close, but we uh, fell five uh, seats short of winning back the majority uh, the year Bush beat Gore. And uh, then we worked together for uh, for six years uh, in uh, in a media firm, and uh, and we had this great experience together. Uh, in fact, eight years ago, at around this time, uh, we were trying to figure out how to defeat finally defeat Hillary Clinton who was a pugnacious opponent right uh, so that and now you're supporting her uh, for for president I want to go back we'll talk about Obama and our experiences with Obama but it seems like the appropriate time to ask this is that all weird now because I know you're out 
uh, and I, look, I worked for her when she ran for the Senate in 2000. I know her well. I, there's much I admire about her. But is it odd for you, because you acknowledged earlier that when you're in, you're in like 100% and you're out to beat the other person. And I kind of remember you being out to beat her. We were there together, brother. But wh- what, uh, what is it like now uh, when you're out there on the hustings for her? It's a great question. You know, I, I'll get asked, you know, well, did you mean everything you said? And back in a way, yeah, I did, every word of it. I wouldn't have changed a thing. Uh, Barack Obama was the right person at that moment for our party in the country. It actually was more natural than I thought it would be. There's times it's strange. I remember being in Nevada during the caucuses. I went over for a couple of days to help, and I walked through a campaign office headquarters, and that was a little weird. But, you know, I think, you know, both of us worked in the White House. So I think you 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 get a... I think, a more responsible sense of what's required for that office. And I looked at the field, both Democrat and Republican. I didn't see anybody close to her in terms of the ability to handle the office, to strength the experience, and, you know, generally to build on the Obama legacy. So for me, it's been fairly natural, um, surprisingly so. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I think it does speak to the fact that the Democratic Party doesn't have much bench, that right now her only you know, contender, and he's been a strong one, is a, you know, 74-year-old rumpled socialist. That 74-year-old rumpled socialist has stirred a real enthusiasm among young people, something that we were able to do, that Barack Obama was able to do in 2008. No one was more attuned to that than you. You paid a lot of attention to that. As we talked about the race, you, you, it was all sort of, uh, it was all uh, uh, predicated on the notion that uh, we could galvanize millions of people and particularly young people to give their dollars and to organize and and so on. He's using that playbook pretty effectively in this campaign. Why? How is it that a 74-year-old guy uh, has motivated young people to the extent that he's beating Hillary, you know, seven, uh, seven to two, eight to one, I mean, just by huge margins? Right. Well, you remember when when we built a strategy in part um, on the belief that young people would turn out and get involved in larger numbers than historically they had, we were laughed out of every room for the most part, particularly when we talked to reporters about that. But it's nothing we did in the campaign. Barack Obama fostered this relationship with younger voters. They believed in him. He believed in them. And so I think Sanders has done the same thing here, um, in some respects, uh, even stronger than we did in terms of the vote margins. He's not bringing out as many of them. You know, we really were able to blow out turnout. He's not done that. The revolution has fallen short there. But something real. And so I think the fact that he is, uh, you know, he was a socialist, uh, not part of the establishment, even though he's been in office a long time. You said Democratic Socialist. Democratic Socialist. I stand corrected. But for whatever reason, so you say, what if Martin O'Malley said everything Bernie Sanders said? Um, You know, he wouldn't do nearly this well. You know, uh, for whatever reason, at this moment, Sanders is out of central casting for the role he's playing. Uh, and I do think that, listen, the Democrats have a, a kind of authenticity. He does. To him. He's been saying this stuff for 50 years. You know? He's been very consistent and authentic. Right. The same speech he's giving now is not different, much different than what he gave in Burlington. So he um, uh, it's interesting. It, actually, 80 percent of Sanders and Trump's speech is kind of the same. They differ a little bit on the culprit and a lot on the remedy. But they're both tapping into something real out there. So the Democratic Party has gotten much more populous in the last eight years and moved more left. You, uh, you know, you said you, you, and I, I thoroughly understand this because having spent two years in the White House as well, uh, I saw it myself. But you said 
you get a, a stronger sense of what it takes to actually uh, be the president. And you hear Hillary in these debates making these pragmatic arguments about what's achievable, and you hear Bernie Sanders invoking this idealistic vision of what should be. Um, uh, it's harder to sell pragmatism, uh, especially young people, isn't it? Particularly in a primary. Primary is about a you know, sort of passion and vision and imagining the world we'd like it to be. Her strength, sort of pragmatism, strength, responsibility, which I think will be strong um, assets for the country when she's president, I think they'll actually be pretty strong assets in the general election. There may be hindrances in a primary. Do you, uh, what, what do you see, we, we sort of identified weaknesses in her as a candidate when she was running. What are her weaknesses and strengths as a candidate? I mean, we, we, we just touched on one, but... Well, I do think sort of electorally, I think the biggest concern for the campaign has to be young voters. And it's not just those supporting Sanders. There's all sorts of young voters out there who aren't voting in the primary she needs to vote for. To me, that's like a Manhattan project for the campaign to figure out how to basically, you may not fix that. More like a Brooklyn project. Maybe a Brooklyn project. Huge problem for the campaign. I think there is, you know, the sense that these trust numbers are undeniable. You know, they're not good. Now, I think you got to turn that around a little bit. And I don't think you should run a campaign within a campaign to fix those necessarily. But say, the real question is, who do you trust to fight for your health care and your job and your wage growth and to keep the Iran deal in place and fight climate change? That's the question. And I think she can turn that around effectively. Um, But she's also been on the stage for a very long time. And Trump and Sanders both show the electorate's looking for something new and different. Um, so I think this election, whether it's Trump or Cruz, you know, this is not going to be secretariat racing to a record time at the Belmont on a clean track. It's going to be a muddy track. But all that matters is how do you get the 270 electoral votes? So this is not going to be one that's hanging up in the art gallery of presidential campaign wins. Yeah. And uh, probably not the most edifying experience for voters either. No. Um, you you know, the thing that I remember uh, so much uh, about uh, our discussions before both elections was your desire to um, really explore the limits of technology to see what we could do. You and I both did a race. We did a race together in 2006 in Massachusetts to help Patrick uh, his race for governor, and he had a lot of young techies working for him, and they ran a social media campaign that was. There were some Howard Dean refugees from 2004 social media campaign that was really something to behold. Um, how, how much did you derive from that, and, and what did you take away from that? And what's your basic right. philosophy about data, social media, the sort of new technologies as it relates to politics? Well, you and I spoke a lot about that Patrick campaign, both during and after. By the way, what a pleasure to be involved in that race. Yeah, that was he was a, he's a great, great, great guy. Great guy. Oh, didn't we start at like less than 1%? Yes, and yeah. everybody mocked him Two. because he was going door to door in Massachusetts and, <laughs> right. and, and, and doing field organizing. I mean, one of the things that interests me is you're a field guy who is identified with technology, but the reality is that technology has given you new tools to... Right. To go door to door virtually. No, it's it's enhanced grassroots organizing, which is still the most important contact in politics is a human being talking to another human being. But no, the Patrick campaign was eye opening. Yeah. So you saw what you saw was that marriage between technology and grassroots organizing. And so there's no doubt that we learned a lot of lessons there and carried them forward. Um, you know, what Duvall and John Walsh and Doug Rubin and everybody involved in that did. Uh, we cribbed liberally. But my theory is how are people living their lives? 
How are they shopping? How are they getting news? How are they interacting with your friends? Your campaign has to be consistent with that. If it's deficient, um, you're going to lose a lot of people. So one of the great things we had, we didn't have any institutional support in the beginning in 07. But what we did have was a lot of tech support. So, you know, we had a lot of people from California giving us good advice, right? That was our establishment in the beginning. And, you know, there we used to do conference calls with them all the time, uh, sort of the, the lay leadership of the campaign from the tech side. And their advice was always, don't try and have a better website uh, or organizing platform than Hillary Clinton or John McCain. Try and have something that's as good as what the private sector has. And that was always our goal. And we tried to do the same thing from a data and modeling standpoint, so we understand who our targets were and how they were behaving. And so I think that's the challenge, I think, for any campaign is uh, you can't have the best uh, technology data modeling in politics. It's got to be on the level with an Amazon or a Facebook or the New York Times. It just has to be. And these things are taking quantum leaps. By the time we got to 2012, I know you were – uh, you were in the government, but within the sort of private councils and discussions, you were pushing very, very hard to uh, to, to to hire an army of data analysts, uh, and that turned out to be. Uh, it may not have been a game changer, but it certainly made the game easier uh, for the for the president. Well, we ended up winning by enough of a margin that it maybe wasn't decisive. But if it was the campaign we thought which is a 50-50 deal, it would have made the difference. So, no, listen, my view is in the same thing, in, I think, in business or government or education. The more you can know, the better off you are. And with data and modeling today, you can just know a lot more and make better decisions. It doesn't mean you're going to win, but you know. And I think the media often focused on in 12, oh, we had better data about what was going to happen. That wasn't right. important. It's what we did with it leading up to the election right. that mattered. Though we did have better data about what was going to happen as well. Yeah. That was a byproduct of what... Uh, of what we were going to do. The funny thing about the data stuff is, and you, you just touched on it, there's a misunderstanding about it that somehow this is this nuclear weapon, and if you have it, that you'll win. Uh, you know, in the sports parlance, it is really the field goal team, and you got to drive down the field and get close enough to kick the field goal, because it's not going to make a 10 or 15 point difference in a race. It might make a one or two point difference in a close race where you'll win the race. You're exactly right. And and it's not just that, so the data and technology uh, help, you know, maybe they're the actual, uh, they're the long snapper. But the field goal kicker is the grassroots volunteers and organizers because they use the data and they enhance it. They go out and talk to David Axelrod and say, oh, wait, David's still undecided, but he's got new concerns about Romney and his Afghanistan timeline. Well, you put that in a blender. It's very important to know. And, you know, we tried to get as surgical as possible to have the right person talk to you then and say, hey, I know you're concerned about Afghanistan. Obama will end the war Romney won. So the point is the marriage between what you know and how you take action on it. Now, anybody can send mail and serve people digital ads, and that's important. But what we had in the Obama campaigns was we had passion. We had millions of people out there who were willing to devote part of their life to his election and re-election. And that's really where the magic came in. So often people will say, well, everybody should do what you guys did. Well, you can't. If right. you don't have passion, and I think that's going to be Hillary Clinton's biggest challenge is, can she create the passion on the ground, both to get the turnout, but the organization to bring people out? I think that's a challenge. Do you think it's possible, given the probability that the Republican candidate will either be Donald Trump or Ted Cruz, both uh, fairly hard-edged uh, opponents with 
uh, fairly pronounced profiles. Uh, do you think that their presence will uh, will allow there to be uh, passion on the Democrats? I would like these young people come out uh, in response to the threat of a, a Trump and a Cruz? I do think it'll help a lot, but it's just one side of a coin. So yeah, there's the stakes and the threat and the opposition. But then the other side is the passion for her. You've got to have both, I think. Now, maybe against Trump, you don't need both. Maybe you're going to win against Trump no matter what, and you don't need that. But in a close race, you need both. You need people to be passionate about the stakes and about defeating your opponent. But they have to be passionate for you. I think that was always understood, or maybe not properly understood, uh, about Barack Obama, is that was such a weapon for us politically. Yeah, It allowed us to sort of accomplish the art of the possible. We wanted to register voters or hit turnout numbers with African-Americans or young people. The people on the ground made it happen. So Bernie's got part of that equation in that he seems to have galvanized a lot of young people. He hasn't penetrated the African-American community. That seems decisive in this whole fight. Well, Liz, the primary's over. Yeah. I mean, I have as much chance of being the Democratic nominee as Bernie Sanders. I mean, zero. I know that delegates aren't very interesting. Proportionality is not interesting. It's good a fact. Of you, good of you to concede that. Right. Yeah. It's a big concession. It's over. Yeah. doesn't mean he's still not going to win some states. And he's run an exceedingly strong race, uh, but it's over. So he had some limitations to what he could uh, sort of break into. Um, I also think, you know, he is largely virgin snow, meaning, you know, he's not really been roughed up to the extent a Clinton right. or even a Trump has been. Right. Well, I think that's the advantage that he's had throughout, which is that nobody really believed that he was going to be the nominee. And you don't get the scrutiny. Uh, you don't get the kind of scrutiny that a, 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 a presumptive nominee is going to get. And the Republicans certainly weren't going to go after him uh, on the theory that, a, she's probably going to be the nominee, and B, if he's the nominee, they can go after him then. Right. So it's not exactly right to say, uh, well, he's got a very favorable public profile right now in a general election because because the Republicans would make it their business to see to it that he didn't. Right. I think this is an axe expression. You know, he's been riding on his white horse. Yes. So uh, he really has picked up very little mud. So these polls that say he'd win by 14 points and she's tied, I, I just don't believe him. I think at the end of the day, he'd get roughed up in a general election. Um, what about the Republican side? You know, I, I heard or read somewhere that Ted Cruz said that in preparation, in preparation for this race, he read your book. Uh, and I was really deeply affronted that he didn't read my book. But... Uh, but he read your book, and, and what he took away from that is a lot of what you're saying here, which is, you know, you've got to, uh, you've got to think strategically. You've got to have a plan. You, you know, it's got to be rooted in data. And, and uh, I mean, he's really, he's run, nobody, you know, everybody says, gee, it's really shocking that Donald Trump is uh, doing as well as he's doing. But to a lot of folks in Washington, it's just as shocking that Ted Cruz is doing well. So the question is, you've been bold in your prediction that uh, the Democratic race is over, which isn't really a revelation. Uh, but what about the Republican race? Uh, wh where do you think this thing ends up? Well, here's what I think is interesting. I think six weeks ago, Trump controlled his destiny. Maybe he wasn't going to get 12, 73, but he's going to get very close. Controlled it. I mean, there's just political malpractice happening every day in that campaign. He's hemorrhaging delegates in states that, you know, have district conventions and state conventions. Um, he's going to, I think, lose, I don't know, 50, 75 delegates just through political malpractice. 
So he's underperforming, I think. He's not, you know, I think it's catching up to him. Cruz is overperforming. I think he's very workmanlike, but he's running a very smart campaign. So my view is it's basically a 50-50 race right now. I would have said six weeks ago it was 80-20 Trump, maybe 90-10. And, you know, there's a lot of people now talking about how terrible he's doing. He's going to win New York. He's probably going to do very well in New Jersey, maybe Pennsylvania. Yeah. So he could go on a run here. So Which point out we're doing this on the eve of the New York primary. So every assumption is that he's going to run away with that. Yeah, run away with it. So there'll be a little bit of resurgence. But at the end of the day, so I think the question is, is Trump at 1,200 delegates? Is he at 1,150? Is it 1,100? If he's at 1,100, I think it becomes easier for Cruz. I completely dismiss the notion that somehow it's not going to be Trump or Cruz. Right. I mean, how can you have the people who come in one, two, one the establishment darling, the other the grassroots conservative darling, denied the nomination, almost like the elections didn't matter. Be the hottest thing in Cleveland since the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. Yeah, Mayor Dennis Kucinich yeah. presiding, yes. Uh, but the, the uh, I mean, my assumption is that if Trump doesn't win on the first ballot, that Cruz will win on the second or third because the, the delegates become unbound progressively. So uh, 57% of the delegates or something will be bound on the second ballot and they'll run away from uh, they'll run away from Trump. Unlike the Democratic Party, Republican candidates don't pick these delegates. The party picks the delegates and it, it makes it a much more treacherous uh, environment for them. The only thing I would say about Trump is that, uh, you know, once it became clear, as you said, when it looked like he had this thing won, uh, they opened up like a historically big can of whoop on him, the Republican Party did, to try and prevent him from becoming the nominee. I was asked on TV the other day, who, if I were the Democratic nominee, would I prefer Trump or Cruz? And you probably have a firmer view on this. It was a, not an obvious question to me, because even though Trump is hated and has the highest negatives in the history of American politics, uh, just about, uh, certainly for anybody who's about potentially a nominee, he's an asymmetric guy who can make incursions in places you don't expect, and it plays by no rules and will hit you with punches that no other politician would throw. And I would think that'd be a little unsettling. Very unsettling. So I'd prefer to run against Cruz. Yeah, that's what I said. Because now you can make the argument that, no, no, run against Trump because he gives you the opportunity to win by a big margin, sweep a lot of Democrats, and I get all that. But with Cruz, I think you know what you're dealing with. He doesn't have a lot of elasticity. Um, I still think you can win comfortably if you run a strong race and get good turnout. If not, you know, a Cruz-Clinton race could get uncomfortably close. But with Trump, I also just think that execution and prosecution of the campaign day-to-day will be gruesome. Uh, and anything Donald Trump says is legitimate news as the Republican nominee. And, you know, they had a little dust-up last December um, where he threw, uh, you know, a brushback pitch about, you know, some old news regarding the former president. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people are shocked by that. But my guess is that's just a taste of what we'd see. Oh, I, I don't think there are any. I always say he wants to build walls, but he knows no boundaries. <laughs> I think that he would do whatever, uh, whatever he thinks he needs to to try uh, to try and win. Uh, I should ask you a few about your current life. Uh, you're now working for Uber, um, and you're involved in some campaigns of, uh, of a different <laughs> sort now in cities like all over the world. Right. Um, and, you know, so I, I want to give you a chance to rehearse these arguments that you make so often. 
um, the argument on the one side that Uber is not highly regulated enough, so security issues, uh, don't pay their drivers enough, you know, the gig economy, no security, no benefits, and so on. Um, but you have another side of the argument, so right. I'm, I'm giving you an open mic here, man. I appreciate that. Yes. That's not rare I get an open mic. Yes. No, I think, well, first For a of minute. All, right. On min- so me. on regulations, you know, we're regulated in many parts of the world, uh, you know, here in Illinois where we're talking uh, statewide regulations, you know, that guarantee the kind of background checks that are conducted, insurance, vehicle inspections. Financial arrangements, we uh, contribute about uh, Uber and Lyft, our domestic competitor, $50 million a year to Chicago. So, um, And on the economic side, I mean, the reason I'm so passionate about it is we know that even as the economy's recovered, many people feel stuck economically. They've not seen wage growth. And so people are using platforms like ours, like here in Chicago. Uh, 66% of our drivers drive less than 10 hours a week. So most of them have other jobs. They're doing this on the side uh, to add income, whether that's sort of regularly as just part of their monthly income or they do it when they want to go on vacation and they don't want to build uh, add to their credit card debt. So I think that, and it's clear on both the rider and driver side, there's a hunger for people uh, to use this platform, push a button to get a ride, push a button to get work. And underserved communities, so south and west side of Chicago, it's probably my favorite Uber story in the United States. I mean, those communities have really been transformed because it was really hard to get around. And the burden of transportation falls disproportionately to low-income people. So I think that— Well, and you've cl- brilliantly mobilized those communities in fights in New York and elsewhere uh, where uh, the local authorities have uh, tried to limit Uber, and uh, the communities fought back. Well, and it, so— just Maybe like with in a the Obama encouragement campaign. from you. Sure. Just like in the Obama campaign, we encourage people. But if people don't feel strongly about something, they're not going to take action. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our victory in New York, if you want to call it that, and the success we've had with regulations around the world is because our riders and drivers feel passionate. So they're willing to open emails, post on Facebook, go to rallies uh, because it's mattered to them, either because it's extra money you're making as a driver or as a rider. It's made a big difference in your life. It's saving you time and saving you money. You know, you know, in politics, when we all the research we did those years with voters, they often would would talk about two things. They didn't feel like they had enough time or money and platforms like those. They're not going to solve that problem for people, but they help alleviate it. I have to tell you this story. I, I'm working on a piece. I have not revealed this uh, uh, for the New Yorker on the rebuilding of the Cubs. <clears throat> and I spent time in Arizona with the team uh, during spring training. Um, and what was uh, w- what struck me was that the whole thing had the feel of the 2008 Obama campaign. Uh, first of all, there was coherence, because you remember we were able to assemble the team we wanted to assemble. There was no, there was no Obama team, right. and we could we did the Ocean's Eleven thing. We got the people we the best people who we thought would be the most coherent team. We're like an expansion team. Yes, <laughs> yeah, except better. And then we uh, and then the other element was that we tried to do everything better, including using data uh, and. Uh, Every edge we could find, and that's uh, so they, so the Cubs have a, a pretty expansive data anal, anal, an analytics team that didn't exist before. Uh, that helps them not just evaluate talent, but in positioning of outfielders and uh, you know obviously pitching and, and catching and how to 
play each uh, matchup and so on. Pretty phenomenal. Uh, and I, the reason I raise it with you is because I know you're a baseball fanatic too. So maybe you can pass this, some of this along to the, uh, to the Phillies. Yeah, the Phillies. This is going to be the Cubs year. Uh, the Phillies might be a few years down the road. By the way, when you told me a few weeks ago you're working on this piece, it's the most excited I've heard you in a very long time. Yeah, no, I can't I, wait know, to I read it. I love baseball. Right. And and I, there, it seemed and, like but a, I was more excited about it after I spent time there because, um, because I recognized, I love, as you do, I love the idea of uh, a group coming together around a common goal. Um, they're loose. Um, they look to me like a group. They've got this great manager, Joe Madden, who's um, uh, incredible motivator, but really knows how to handle pressure and take pressure off of the team. And one of the things that I always appreciated about uh, the guy we work for is whenever we hit a pothole, uh, he was the guy who, he was the coolest guy around, and he kind of picked everybody up. And there was this sense, we all had this sense, that there were going to be ups and downs. We had a lot of downs in 2007. Uh, but if you kept your eye focused on the the goal, uh, Madden uh, said, um, you know, he said, I never let the, I never let the pressure o- overwhelm the pleasure. And uh, uh, when it came to... Um, when it came to uh, the question of what doesn't the pressure of being the number one, you know chosen by Vegas to win this year doesn't that? And he said, you know, I I don't focus on winning. I focus on process. He said process is fearless. If you do everything you should do, if you do the things the right way, by and large, it's going to work out for you. And if it doesn't work out, there's nothing you can do. And that reminded me so much of some of the conversations we had with Obama. That was sort of his mantra. Right. No, it's brilliant. Well, I think it's interesting. You look at baseball and politics. So we have more data, better data, better predictive models. We're surprised all the time. Why? Because we're dealing with human beings. Yeah. How they deal with pressure, how they perform, whether they're a good cohesive group that trust each other or not. Even in sports, that matters, right? We have great locker rooms and you have cancerous locker rooms. So, um, and I think particularly, you know, you know, it's interesting, 162 games, then the playoffs, it, it in many respects does resemble a long slog during a presidential yes, game. Yes, Primaries, pacing. Con- right. You're going to go through troughs. Right. Uh, as we did. I mean, that was, you know, Barack Obama was, uh, you know, a wonderful candidate for many reasons. Uh, externally, but internally, it was that sense of calmness, focus on process, we'll control what we can control. And there was any number of times where, you know, and I no or fear. you or we no collectively fear. made mistakes, and yeah. he would point them out, sometimes yes. with some relish, but he would focus on how to do better, and he'd always start with himself. Exactly. Now, that was what was impressive. I right. remember after, uh, in 2008, we lost the Ohio-Texas primaries after investing a lot in them. And the first thing he said in a meeting that we didn't know, we didn't know exactly who was going to walk out alive. And instead he said, you know, I can think of 12 things I could have done better. And I bet you all can as well. So let's uh, just move forward and figure out how to, what we learned from that. You remember that plane ride back, by the way? Yes, from, from Texas. It was yes. a kind of a frigid plane ride. No it one was, was really indeed. talking to us. Well, the only thing he said when we left the plane was, I want to see everybody in the office tomorrow at 2. That was a long 12 hours or whatever it was uh, till we got to that meeting. But the fact is, um, he always uh, he always was the guy who picked everybody up off the floor and said, okay, let's move forward. I think that's a great quality in a leader. Yeah, it is. So how do you think Obama will be remembered? Well, uh, I'm biased, of course. 
Yes. But I, I really, consider myself totally an objective. amateur historian, right? So yeah. I think he's going to go down on one of our greatest presidents. But, you know, history will tell. I think no doubt he's going to go down as one of our most consequential presidents. Yeah. So the last hundred years, who are consequential presidents? Well, my list would be uh, clearly Roosevelt. Um, not Eisenhower uh, as a president, as a general. Maybe you look at the combined Kennedy-LBJ years, but, you know, uh, Reagan and Obama. Served at consequential times, did historically consequential things, whether you agree with them or not, and turned the direction of the country. So even at a time of, um, you know, economic crisis on health care, on climate change, on education reform, on Wall Street reform, on progress for gays and lesbians, on putting diplomacy back in our toolbox, he did all those things. And what's amazing is you and I were there with him. If you go back to his announcement speech in the campaign, so much of what he said yeah. then is what he says did says now. And he tried to do everything he talked about. Right. Most of them successfully. So I think he's going to go down as a consequential president. And also from a character standpoint. I mean, uh, he's led with integrity. Um, very few presidents have been challenged like this. Um, the hatred, the venom, the vile. He's kept his cool. Uh, no scandals. Um, you know, a role model, I think, uh, in terms of how to lead and, and, and to be a spouse and a, a parent. So um, I think he's going to, I think history will uh, will judge him quite kindly. And how did, and how did just, just to finish up, how did the experience change you? Well, listen, I, um, you know, other than uh, my marriage and my two children, it's the best thing I'll ever do. Um, do you think you'll ever be involved in a campaign again? And I know you're informally helping out here but very informally no i don't think so i mean maybe i'll run for like school board when i'm 74 or something no i mean it was the best thing i'll ever do you know to be involved with something that was a such great people such great colleagues and for someone you believed in i mean you and i would talk a lot before that we were getting more and more cynical about politics we had obama in 04 we had deval patrick in 06 but let's be honest it was more of a grind right and so to be part of something that millions of people joined us with for a president who did exactly what he said he'd do which is i'm going to do big things not just kind of play the margins and i think to deliver a lot of progress it's it's an amazing thing uh, and I, I remember, you know, back in 03, uh, or maybe it was 02, when you decided we were going to work for Barack Obama, who was probably going to lose and we weren't going to make any money. You said, if I can help get Barack Obama elected to the Senate, I will have done a good thing. Yeah. And so— We, we uh, sort of overshot the runway. Overshot then. the runway. So for yeah. me, I don't know if it's changed me much other than every day that goes by and we get more removed from it, I realize how lucky I was to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, I feel very lucky to have been in a partner with you in all of those endeavors. It's always great to see you, brother. Thanks, Thanks for well. being here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 